Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, let's head down to Tennessee and see a fellow Tennessean and hear about all of the great work she is doing at a place that many of you, especially in this audience, have undoubtedly heard of, know anything about movement history, civil rights history, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, etc. You've heard of the place I'm about to mention, and that's the Highlander Center. As a matter of fact, um, Reverend Barber has, to some extent, brought it back into the vernacular movement because he spent some time down there. And I think it's important that we all go there and renew ourselves in those uh, waters, so to speak, uh, the intellectual waters and spiritual waters. So we're very fortunate today to have someone with us. I, as you all know, I left Tennessee, been in a big city ever since. Uh, (laughs) She stayed. She stayed back home to organize. And we're so thankful for her doing this. She is the co-executive director of the Highlander Center for Research and Education. Ashley Woodard Henderson joins us on Make It Plain. Ashley, how are you? I'm great. And I'm so excited to be joining the Make It Plain family. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're, we're excited to have you here with us. How are things going down at the Highlander Center these days? How have you all been coping with the pandemic? How is your How's your programming been under those circumstances? Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild to think about. Um, I became the first Black woman executive director at Highlander back in 20, December of 2016. So right after it was announced that you know Donald Trump would be the, the 45th president of the United States. Um, and I thought that that was hard. And then in March of 2019, white supremacists tried to burn down our administrative offices. And I thought that was hard. 
And then 2020 happened and, you know, March came around as, as we were remembering the, the attack on our, on our sacred space, uh, the year before, all of a sudden these shelters and these shelter in place orders started dropping and COVID hit. And then the uprisings of the summer, the election of November 2020, the, insurrection on January 6th that I feel like we had been screaming was a possibility for, for years by that point. And then, you know, the flipping of the Senate in Georgia, right? Like just all of these, these things happened. And, and I think that what, what white supremacy and capitalism meant for evil uh, has actually in some ways been for our good, right? I think it showed it showed that this is spiritual work, that they were trying to break our spirits and, and their their violence and attacks on our, our movement infrastructure has failed. Um, so if, if anything, I feel like I bring like gospel, the gospel of the Southern Freedom Movement and of the Islander Center really specifically to spaces when I get that question. I think that the the work that we that we've historically done for almost 90 years now, right, we'll be 89 years young this year, has led to led us to a place of figuring out how to not only bring people together across difference, to learn together and then to implement that new learning in, in terms of like changing, you know, the material conditions of our people and our communities. Uh, we figured out how to do that in a, in a more scalable way, in an innovative way in a 21st century context. So mm. people ask what we're up to. It's like, well, we're doing the same thing we've been doing since 1932. We're just figuring out how to do that in these conditions. And so what that's meant is breaking up the urban rural divide around the, you know, around digital access, right? We became our own internet service provider. We put up an internet tower and we provide it for ourselves and other folks in our community in Newmarket, which for folks that know Tennessee, which you do, Reverend Mark, it's like in between Knoxville and Gatlinburg. If you know where Dollywood is, we're close to that. Um, so what that's meant is that right at a time where what we were used to doing was gathering people on our 186 acres in the foothills of the Smokies or going into the field with them, when, when COVID required that we be physically distant, we got to practice social solidarity because we had access to you know, th th these resources like the internet, which people take for granted. We had access to Zoom and, and all of these things that now are popular vernacular. But at that point, you know, in early 2020, wasn't necessarily something that everybody across the South was using. Um, and so how are our programs? They're awesome. <laughs> They're awesome. We're doing, we're doing really good, all things considered, uh, with all the attacks that have been on our work. We're still doing popular education. We're doing intergenerational organizing and support. We're doing movement accompaniment support. We're fiscally sponsoring organizations like the National Bailout Collective. So if you've ever heard of the Black Mama's Day Bailout or Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, we fiscally sponsor them. The Stay Together Appalachian Youth Project, so many others. Uh, we're doing good and it feels great to be to be not only relevant in a 21st century context, uh, but to be actually practicing what we preach around movement accompaniment and support. Yeah, no, that's that's great. But let me ask you this in terms of the, the, the arson incident um was that ever resolved was anybody brought to justice no that? not at all so there's still essentially four open and ongoing investigations to our knowledge um you know from the local level to the state level uh and the federal level and we have not heard any updates or received any questions about what happened since August of 2019. 
Yeah, what a shame. And it, it also speaks to how what you all have been fighting against 90 years itself continues to bubble up. You know, I always remind people, um, we need to know our history because they know theirs. That's right. And, and if folk didn't get that on January 6th, which really, if you look at January 6th, a lot of that was kind of some of that Confederate Civil War cosplay. Totally. Right. You know, and I'm sure some of the people there, maybe most of them, thought that's all they were going to do. They were just going to play dress up. But then that momentum got going and that mob mentality and it turned into something else. And, you know, we've got to I, I did an interview on uh, the, the, the Times of London Radio and they couldn't understand, Ashley, why I wasn't more optimistic about the Chauvin trial. Yeah. Oh, but this the cops are speaking. I said, yeah, well, I know that's fine. But. We've been burned so many times. We have PTSD that so few cops are convicted. Yeah. And then we see stuff like January 6th. We, we won in November. Like you mentioned, we won in Georgia. Those are black and a Jew elected to send in Georgia. That ain't supposed to happen. But we see what the pushback is. And, and that's why what you do and what the Hollander Center is continuing to do is so important. So in that vein, and as you've been navigating uh, the challenges and all that during COVID and the distance, uh, are you finding since January 6th or maybe even before then, are you finding since last summer's reckoning, so to speak, more people reaching out to you and reaching for your services? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, I think to your previous point, it's like this is we're not we're not naively uh, pessimistic. We are are recognizing, you know, I say working at Highlander and, and being a part of the Black Liberation Movement and the Southern Freedom Movement is like living in the past, present, and future all at the same time. And I say that because we would be we would be neglectful at, at least to not remember that part of the reason that folks are pessimistic about the outcome of that trial or uh, about the, the the white conservative party in this country. And right by black folks just because it's the right thing to do. That there's that pessimism is informed by literally centuries worth of examples of the state and law enforcement and white supremacist organizations colluding with each other in blowback to the liberation of our folks and then the particularly the, the, the self-determination and governance of our people. And not just black people as a monolith, like working class people of all stripes. And so do I do I think that and, and I don't think that the, the, just to be frank, I don't think that the, the tension around that, that I think concrete assessment of concrete conditions about what is likely to happen that is rooted in a historic and material analysis of what we've been through, uh, is, is separate from the, the reality that I think we've been sort of, especially as Southern people, rural people and poor people and black people have been screaming is that like, these things are not isolated incidents. It's not, Shocking that after Charlottesville, after the black churches in Louisiana were on fire, which was within a week of the Highlander arson, when the mosque was on fire in Jerusalem, and now the many, many, many mass shootings by white supremacist members or folks that are influenced by conspiracy theories and white supremacist organizations, that an insurrection on January 6th be like the time that we clutch our pearls because we can't believe it's happening. 
And so in terms of like people being interested in Highlanders program, sure. I mean, we're busy and we've been busy. I mean, before we started to like physically shut down the the facilities to keep people safe from the, the pandemic, it was nothing to, to just on the site to be reaching 6,000 people a year. That's not even including folks that we met online or communities that asked us to come and do movement accompaniment support with them in the, in the field, right? Um, I, I feel like if anything, being able to go virtual and include that in our in our sort of tactical tool belt to, to, to work our programs and do political education, popular education, um, is just giving us even more capacity to talk to people all over the world. And and I, I want to be clear, that's always been true for Highlander. We've, uh, we've always been a, a local org with a regional priority with national and international impact. And I think that what that means for us now is that that we actually have a responsibility to showing up and showing out and, and helping to support folks be be rec- like literally remembering and reclaiming their radical legacies of resistance and the tactics that they've used to be able to win. I, I think that it would be a shame if folks thought that people were coming to Highlander just because they were reacting to white supremacist violence. I think people are coming because they really they really want to reclaim what was already theirs, that white supremacy and capitalism, homophobia and all the things try to steal from them. Yeah, yeah. It's a home place. Right. And they've not stopped. And so we can't either. You know, yeah, and I think to your point, it's like both around like the global nature of the, the the attacks. Right. It's like it is not shocking to most of the folks that would pay attention to make it plain that, you know, Trump was was not unilateral. Like he said, America first, but he was actually building with you know fascist and authoritarian, you know, dictators all over the, the globe. But what's real is like also law enforcement does that too, right? And so do these white supremacist organizations. It's not shocking when we think about like the arson at Highlander that the symbol of the white power movement that was spray painted in our parking lot was also etched into the gun of the mass shooter at Christchurch, New Zealand, right? These these folks are building a global movement around white nationalism, white populism, white conservatism, uh, you know, fascist tendencies, authoritarian tendencies. Uh, and, and, and I frankly believe that it's in response to the victories that we've been building. Yeah. yeah. No, I would agree. You know, um, what you said about living in the past, present and future, I was on a, in a conversation on a, in a meeting rather with, uh, Dr. Alva Carruthers of the Proctor Conference. And she was reminding all of us in the meeting that as African people, Time is not linear, but circular. And so, you know, that's why, folks, it feels like that you feel like, you know, I'm everything's happening at once. But that's one of the reasons for it. Um, by the same token, what you all have been able to do is challenge um, the divisions that exist in these in these disparate groups. In fact, you are referred to as an affirmation. Uh, <laughs> tell our audience what that means, and especially what it means in the context of bringing urban and rural together. Yeah. So, you know, I am a, I'm a Southern supremacist. Everybody that knows me knows it. I believe that as goes the South, so goes the nation isn't an opinion. It's a fundamental fact. Uh, if you didn't believe it before 2020, hopefully we showed you better than we could tell you. Uh, in the last electoral cycle, but 
why does it matter that I call myself an Afro-Latchian is that one, at this myth that, that the only stories to tell about the South or Appalachia in particular, where I was, where I was born and raised, as, as being synonymous with whiteness or white supremacy. It's like, no, actually, where I'm from, my mother was like a member of the Black Panther Party. Nikki Giovanni as well, right? Like, when you, when you think about Appalachia and you think, oh, that's those, like, backwoods hillbillies, it's also like Bessie Smith and Usher Raymond. You know, like, it's also... It's, it's, it's also, you know, when you think about radical legacies of resistance, the first... You don't get the abolitionist movement just because in New York and California, no shade, no foul. But like the first abolitionist newspaper was written in Jonesboro, Tennessee, right? Even if I was going to spread outside of my sort of central Appalachian roots, I would offer that like even even that very party that my mother raised me up in, that politic that came from that black radical party, the, the, the first the first organizing in the Black Panther Party wasn't in like Oakland. It was in Lowndes County, Alabama, with Gwen Patton and those folks, right? So I think that why I why I proudly identify as Appalachian and really hold fast to the remembering of the radical like revolutionary legacy of resistance of the South is because it means something to be from a place, a place that that historically folks folks use to erase the reality of, of, of rural black people, right? Uh, that, that, that Appalachia is not synonymous with whiteness is a stamp for me around using my, like making sure that my identity around being Appalachian is clear. Then I, then I also think partly why it's important is because, you know, even when we think beyond the abolitionist movement or just what people immediately think of as in terms of black radical traditions, it's like, you know, the, the last time that this country bombed its own People, if you if you're if you're thinking about rural work in particular in Southern history, you know some people would argue move in Philly, right? And that's that's a fair assessment. Uh, but what I'd also offer is that the, the in terms of like the labor movement, which is arguably one of the most historic movements that this country has ever seen, is like the battle at Blair Mountain, where a black led working class, you know, multiracial United Front stood up to capitalism through the through fighting back against their bosses in the mines and the state that protected the bosses over its people the state literally bombed those workers right so i think there's just there's something to me about learning who i was in relationship to that inheritance that i felt like the state and white supremacy and capitalism were stealing from me um, and so I, I wasn't the person that had the good sense to create it. Uh, you know, folks like the Appalachian poets, creatives, artists, visionaries, uh, were the ones that I think helped some of us youngins find our way to being proud of what it means to reclaim a long legacy of like free black folks in these mountains, <laughs> you know, folks that were determined, regardless of the state's characterization of them or erasure of them, uh, to say that they were worth investing in. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. So your mom was in the Black Panther Party. You're now active in the movement for Black Lives, aren't you? Sure. I was I was uh, around in December of 2014 when we started it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how has that um, been able to intersect with the work that you've been doing at the Highlander Center, the movement for Black Lives? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of ways. I think one. 
Highlander, Highlander has had ebbs and flows and different frontline struggles. Um, and I think that even our commitment to, to what it means to have transitioned from a traditionally white led organization to a black led organization has just shifted the amount of capacity uh, that we have to actually support black led work in the region in a real committed and long term way. Not the expense of any other work. We're a school, so we don't pick our students, right? Or, or our teachers, but uh, but we are committed to actually showing up and showing out in support of the largest social movement in U.S. history that was, has been being built for generations, uh, but that our commitment to and capacity support has gone up and down. I think the other thing that I would say is like, again, we got 186 acres in the foothills of the Smokies, right? So when, when the movement for Black Lives is needed space or organizations, the 150 some odd organizations in the in the network and growing that want need a place to be either for strategy development or rest and respite or leadership development and training. Uh, they've got a place to go. Right. And that's not only for the movement for black lives, but for all social movements. Um, but I think like if I was, if I was really getting into the nitty gritty, what I, what I hope we're, we're, we're doing is like both because the South is the largest geographic region in the United States, but even more importantly, because it's the place where the highest concentration of black people in this country live that the movement for black lives be really committed to the important work of, of local power building, particularly in the South across the urban and rural divide. And I think that's, you know, if you go on our website, we're super transparent. Our, our, our five-year plan, our strategic plan is on the website. It's called black power rising. Um, and you can see for yourself, like our commitment to doing that local base building and organizing work on the ground across the region um, and across the country. So I think that there's there's been a, a, a both a commitment to sort of organizing ourselves out of a job, uh, you know, for the sake of liberation and actually really being committed to seeing it in our lifetime um, and the opportunity to, like, not build strategy that's ahistoric by being in relationship with an institution that carries so much of the weight of the, the bearing of the history of our of our movement, the Black Liberation Movement. So I, I, I hope that if we contribute in anything as Highlander other than capacity building, et cetera, is, is a, a connection to a history that reminds us that we're not the first, last, or only to do the work. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and of course, the Highlander Center is, is continuing many of its programs, raising money. By the way, you mentioned a, a place to meet. I'm sort of listening to you, it just crossed my mind. That whenever we can all gather again. I'm involved in two or three organizations that could stand a place to come and meet and get themselves together. If you know what I mean? True. Really, because I mean, you you need it in in this. It's so hard, as you know, to focus in all this hustle and bustle. And I'm here in New York, so I guess I'm. I, mean, I got a meeting tonight. I'm gonna tell you. You know, we can figure out a way to go down to the house or some of one of these days. Get ourselves together and get refocused. But. um you, if, if I'm not mistaken, you're raising money. You're going to build a new September Clark Learning Center. Is that we built it? It's up. So uh, okay, the, the week after we always are fundraising, just in part because so much of our movement accompaniment and support actually isn't hoarding the resources to Highlander. It's moving the resources from Highlander to the ground uh, to grassroots organizations, some of whom don't even have C3 infrastructure um, to be able to receive funds, and so. Uh, to be honest, we give a lot, we give a lot of money away, um, or we use it for people to be able to travel to us to, to learn or, or to get rest and respite to, you know, we've, we've been closed 
you know, for, for big groups. And we've been underground railroading people uh, away from harm, whether that was white supremacist violence or state sanctioned violence against their communities. Um, and so, you know, just making sure there's enough resources to make sure people can access it when they need it. Um, and I think a big lesson for us, too, is making sure that we've got resources on deck when the next attack happens um, so that we can support or when the next crisis hits so that we can support not only the sort of rapid response work, but also the, the, the recovery work and the long haul movement building work that folks don't get investments in because funders don't find it interesting. You know, it, it blew my mind. I was just a regular ragtag organizer. <laughs> Uh, before I was the, the first black woman executive director of Highlander, I had no idea how philanthropy worked, really, not truthfully. I knew, you know, I maybe had some political assumptions around like charity versus solidarity. And I, I'd maybe heard through the movement grapevine of the black liberation movement about how philanthropy had been used as a tool to, you know, to destroy black movements sometimes, right? But, but I didn't know the details. And when I became an executive director, I found out that only 4% of all philanthropic dollars in this country go to the South, the U.S. South. You can imagine how much of that 4% then goes to Black-led organizing, goes to rural organizing, goes to the, the organizing of like impoverished people that are trying to do radical root cause work, right? Wow. Um, wow. And so, you know, to be honest, I think part of Highlander's role in, in the fundraising work is actually to push folks that can give to give in ways that are not harmful to movement, right? Um, so we do a lot of that. But I, but I want to tell you about the Sepsima Clark Learning Center. I mean, one, it was like, you know, again, we were committed in, in me and, and, and the Reverend Alan Maxfield of the Disciples Tradition uh, as my co-executive director. I handpicked him. People were like, oh, man, as soon as they pick a black woman, then they, then they decide to go to a co-directorship with this white guy. I actually, I said I wanted that. <laughs> Uh, I said I wanted that because one, we're a multiracial organization, and two, uh, we're still black led. Um, but but the the point being that if we conceded the territory of whiteness, somebody would fill the vacuum. Um, and I trusted him; he was the white guy I trusted. Um, and he, it's been an incredible journey. I wouldn't do it without him. Um, but but both of us in our tenure knew that we wanted to reclaim and retell and amplify the stories of black folks, particularly black women, who made the Highlander Center what it is, right? Like, it's it's an easy story to find about Miles Horton um, and more and more of like Zilphia Horton and, you know, John Gaventa and Mike Clark and Pamela G. McMichael and all these incredible leaders, uh, Pete Seeger, Guy Candy Carawan, right? Like people people are, are, are active in telling those stories. I haven't always, and even the stories of some of our black folks, right? It's like, they'll talk about Rosa Parks coming to train at the Highlander Center, but they don't talk about the fact that she was a board member, right? That you don't get to an Ashley Henderson executive directorship had she not served to preserve the organization, to make sure that the organization could survive white supremacist sanctioned attacks on the infrastructure. You'll hear about Miles Horton saying you can padlock a building, but you can't padlock an idea, but not hear about the the never-ending meetings <laughs> that that Black folks stood in uh, as board members to make sure that we were legally protected and had some infrastructure, right? So one of those stories that we wanted to make sure to tell was the story of Sutton McClure, both as the, the grandmother of the civil rights movement, as I would argue the world's most excellent teacher, right? A woman that, that can you imagine like what it meant to teach and train and create popular education space for hundreds of thousands of black people before the internet, before you could just get on an airplane, before cell phones, before social media, 
when it was still kind of illegal for you to be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like she did it and, and she she came and served at Highlander. Um, the reason that SELC and Dorothy Cotton ultimately got the project uh, of freedom schools and citizenship schools was because of the attack on Highlander. And Miss Clark had the wherewithal to be like, hey, Dorothy, come take it, right? Be prepared to take it and run the ball because the movement needs to still keep going as we figure out what's next for Highlander. Um, and so we wanted to honor her. Um, and she also served on the board of directors with Miss Rosa uh, as well. And so we we made it a commitment that we wanted to build something that honored her legacy with support from her family. And uh, so March March of 2019, we were white supremacists. The next week, we broke ground on the Septima Clark Learning Center. And yeah, it's a beautiful building. We did a, a, a virtual grand opening with members of Miss Clark's family, her children and grandchildren. Um, it was a it was a sacred a sacred time together. And uh, when COVID passes and more people can gather safely, uh, we will absolutely. Uh, be inviting people to come and check out the archives that are going to be there, the library that will be there, the bookstore that will be there, and we'll be able to host more groups coming to meet and do their strategy building or or their leadership development and training because we have space uh, in the Septimus Clark Learning Center. So we're proud to honor her legacy. Wow, that's amazing. Well, congratulations on that as well. More MIP after this message. Hey there, this is Christina Gonzalez, and I'm so excited for you to check out my new podcast, Politics of Food. On this show, we explore the political, economic, and social implications of food creation and consumption, both locally and worldwide. Should we eat first or should we protest first? Like, okay, <laughs> let's organize, let's talk to the press, let's get our word out, and then let's sit down and eat. Follow Politics of Food with Christina Gonzalez at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. So, Ashley, as we climb out of this plague and things, hopefully within the next year, we'll get to back to some semblance of normalcy. Let our audience know what are some of the specific um, issue priorities and programmatic priorities for the Highlander Center. Absolutely. So, I mean, you can go on our website and see the methodologies. But in terms of specific issue areas and programming, and again, this wasn't necessarily because we just had good sense. It was because we were good listeners. We listened to folks in the South that said what they wanted. Uh, was that there's specific questions and need for, for, for intensive grappling with questions of democracy and governance and with questions of the economy, right? Like, what does it mean to actually prioritize the building of an economy that is good for our people and good for our planet? And what is what do we mean when we talk about self-determination and governance, right? Um, and so we, we brought lots of people together uh, to develop a curriculum called Mapping Our Futures. You get that curriculum on our website, highlandercenter.org. It's free. Um, all you have to do is go on the website and, and, and lock, like get it, just download it. Um, and so we've been creating spaces all across the country, virtually and in person before COVID to bring people together to grapple with some of these questions around, like, what would you actually do if you controlled the economy? If you had dollars and cents that you could spend on investment and community solutions that you all control, and what decisions would you make about how those dollars are distributed if you governed yourself, right? Um, and what does that look like? What does that look like inside systems that exist? And what does it look like to build alternatives to the system that exists that, that you actually have actually like more control over in an interdependent way and not a codependent way. 
uh, with the state. And so that's one of our priorities is, is this sort of economics and governance work. A second priority of ours is, is again, this sort of commitment to lifelong leadership development and, and organizing training and doing that in an intergenerational way. Um, so we have some of the best youth programming I've ever experienced. Um, I also came out of some of it. Uh, there's a children's justice camp for youngins that are about like the age of six to 12. Um, and then there's Seeds of Fire, which is for folks that are like 13 through college age. There are fellowships for young people. Um, those young people then control their own programming and, and dictate what they want to learn and help teach each other in a, in a sort of peer mentorship kind of way. Uh, even with our Seeds of Fire work, they, they decided they wanted their own fund to be able to support other youth organizing work that was happening on the ground all over the South. Uh, so these young people also were learning again about how to collectively make decisions about money for movement, um, which has been a really beautiful experience. Um, they've been prioritizing work around healing justice and racial justice and economic justice for the last few years. Um, I would also then offer uh, that we're, we're learning about how to be good stewards and in right relationship with the land that we're on. So we're interrogating, uh, you know, land justice work and help support the, the, the starting of the Black Land and Power Project that the National Black Food and Justice Alliance now holds, uh, that both was about figuring out ways that we could build infrastructure to support Black land-based institutions like a Highlander Center, like a Penn Center and others, but also how we then support Black farmers who had been disproportionately disenfranchised by the state. Um, and so we've, we've been, we became members of the National Black Food Justice Alliance and are continuing to do that, that sort of land and food justice work. Um, and then, you know, there's many, many more. We're committed to being in the movement for Black lives, the rising majority. And our work with the frontline most recently uh, has, has been exciting because it's actually making some determinations around what is and is not acceptable in regards to how social movements respond to the electoralizing of a movement, uh, particularly those of us that are rooted in the South. So, you know, flanking and supporting organizations that are doing voter registration and education work, which, you know, you know, the state of Tennessee tried to criminalize over the last electoral cycle. Uh, you know, making sure that people understand these bills and, and, and experiment uh, with building, you know, people's movement assemblies like they're doing in Jackson and like we've been doing regionally is a priority for us. Is figuring out how do we create the spaces for folks not only to learn together, but then to practice together and sum up those lessons to be able to actually transform the conditions that we're in. So go on the website. We've got tons of programs. We're supporting lots of programs that grassroots organizations are moving. Um, and that's that's our commitment is both to to challenge ourselves around a central question, which we think is around economics and governance, to do that sort of lifelong leadership development and training work across a lot of modalities, um, and to do and to really make a, a commitment to incubating and investigating radical work that might be on the precipice of the next big win for our movement. So the kind of those three buckets of work that are a priority for Highland And and being prepared for it. Yep. As opposed to reacting. Absolutely. Being, being on offense. We, and, and see again, that's, and, and this is what to me is so sacred about the work you're doing. Like I said, those who are against us never stop their organizing. A lot of times, what do we do? We'll get a victory and then we'll just exhale and say, Oh, we got this. And, you know, if, if nothing, and I've been saying to people, if nothing else, what we learned from Georgia in January is that the, unprecedented enthusiasm for a special election, even amongst white voters. 
Yeah. Side. We don't folk don't vote special elections in America. But we've got to make that type of voter enthusiasm and participation second nature. And, and it, it can be every time we got to start it back again from scratch. This is why you need to go vote. No, you it, it needs to be like that because they get it. That's why they're trying to suppress it in in the way that they have. And and so, again, I think what you're doing, folks, this is important movement. Frederick Douglass summed it up in two words. This is really eternal vigilance. It doesn't. It, it's not. Oh, we got this victory. Oh, we got Joe. Some people think we got Joe Biden elected. Better yet, we can go back two thousand eight. Even some black. We got black presidents, so we good. No, no, no. They they started clowning even more. <laughs> Our enemies. So, folks, what the Highlander Center has done and continues to do is remind us. That we can't stop, won't stop. We must be involved. And, and you heard our dear sister say she's fundraising. They always raise them, but they need it because they're supporting a lot of efforts. Four, I'm, my mind is going four percent of the philanthropy. Four percent. So imagine, imagine there. Let's imagine a hundred percent, right? If there's if there's a hundred percent pot of money, uh-huh. my understanding is that one percent of that hundred percent goes to like social justice charity work, right? One percent of that hundred percent pile of money. Some of the rest of it might go to science. Some of it might go to like space exploration, right? Like, there's wealthy people spend their money on a lot of other things that is not do good or work, right? So if that's true, and only one percent of the billions of dollars that these mostly rich white men hold goes to charity, then only four percent of that one percent goes to the largest geographic region. In the United States, where the highest concentration of black people live, like if that's not an like an extension of chattel slavery and relationship, like if that's to me the argument of why there needs to be reparations, right? It's like very clear that there is a, a racialized relationship to to capital accumulation in this country, right? And and that's why you know I think again it's like it's not by shock that. The movement for Black Lives then is like, yo, we, we got to be anti-capitalist because Black people can't be free. If that extractive profit over people economic structure continues to be, right? That's just not, we got centuries worth of evidence to prove that to be true. So, you know, I think that that why, why the fundraising stuff is interesting and important to me is not because it's like we want to, we want to grow infinitely you know, or be in a codependent relationship with philanthropy. The point to me is that we get to be unapologetically independent of philanthropy because we sustain it ourselves, one. And two, you know, like we just dropped our our most recent annual report for the last two years, for 2019 and 2020. And it blew my mind how many individual donations we were getting. Small donations, like $5 here, a couple dollars there from all over the world because people believe in, and you know, in the idea that we keep us safe, right? It was, I'm sure it was in no small way because people were like, we're going to show up and show out for Highlander as it's always shown up and shown out for us in, in the wake of the fire. But it's also because I think folks know that like being in a, a codependent relationship with philanthropy is not actually building independent political power for our people. Um, so the more, the more that we give to it, I, like all of our staff, all of our board give, you know, like the reason that we do that 
And so we can do what we want to do in terms of, you know, building radical infrastructure that shows up consistently for our movement. And I don't think there's any way we would have gotten to 90 years old next year had it not been for folks' commitments to doing that. Folks, those are all the reasons why we invite you to go to HighlanderCenter.org, read and understand the history of Septima Clark, the, the SNCC. Some of you may remember uh, over time seeing the, the billboard that was taken out with um, Dr. King uh, and, and Rosa Parks sitting in a Highlander classroom and uh, accusing them of being at a, a school for communists. Communist uh, school, that's right. That's right, communist training school. Uh, well, that's the Highlander Center. If you remember that photograph, that's what that's all about. And we want you to support the Highlander Center, highlandercenter.org. Learn more about it. Um, this, um, sh- this will no longer be, shamefully, a singular visit. To we want to have her back. We want to do this. I've got to come down there. Uh, You're always welcome. Open invite. It's a shame I've not been there. Yet, having grown up right there in the state, uh, like I said, I left and I'm up here in the big city. I don't know where I'm at. But uh, <laughs> I've got to, when I'm, next time I'm home, I'm going to come check it out and encourage others to avail themselves of the opportunity. Somebody want to go have a retreat at the Hilton. There ain't no Hilton. What's wrong with y'all? It's a movement organization. Why you want to go to Hilton for? They got me, Mark, you crazy. It's not, we got to go places where we can do it. They're going to send them this money to the Hilton. Anyway, hey, it's it's don't, a don't get me started. I mean, you know, because because of your relationship to, to movement and to Proctor and uh and, and to to the Southern Freedom Movement, you know, the the there's just something sacred about about those places like the Haley Farm, and the Penn Center, and the Highlander Center, and and uh, so you know, I think there's something special about being in it. To to I think it's something. There's something in the sauce around what it means to be in a space where people have been coming together for like for decades, almost a century, uh, to figure this stuff out. There's something there's something there's something about sitting in those rocking chairs in a circle in that space where people have hammered it out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We gotta do. Yep. do Highlandercenter.org, Ashley, so great to talk to you. So proud of you. Um and all you represent and it is high time. Uh, that someone like you and a black woman in particular is in the position you're in. Um, they say this is the, this, well, before, let me ask you about that. Cause the conversation too is that this is the moment of black women. People are late to the party recognizing the electoral political power of black women. Yet I just did a show yesterday on the jobs report. Right. You know, the group of people that have lost more jobs in this pandemic black is women. black women. So women, y'all, black women, black women, black women, black women all the time. But is this really what it's supposed to be? Are we really handling business on behalf of black women <laughs> like we're supposed to? Yeah. And then which black women? Is that all black women? Is it just cisgender black women? You know, I think there's so much to, to unlock there. I think that what's real is like, again, this past, present, and future stuff. It's like, it's all, it's always been, there's always been black women in leadership, whether I'm talking about like Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth or, Bernice Johnson Regan and, and Margaret Bullock and, and Judy Richardson and Jennifer Lawson, you know, like, or, or, you know, Tamara Wooder, my mama, or, or my grandmama, Helen Wooder, that was 
you know, cleaning houses on Lookout Mountain, but also raising revolutionaries. It's like Fannie Lou Hamer, right? It's like, I, I, I love Stacey Abrams with my whole heart, even when I disagree with her. But I, I don't have to start with a, with a Stacey Abrams or a Jessica Bird or a Rakia Lumumba or a Kayla Reed, those incredible black women of the 21st century that are doing this work. I can talk about what it meant for my people to be from Kill Michael, Mississippi, learning under the leadership of folks like Fannie Lou Hamer and stuff like our county. Right? It's like this 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 is a long arc with a with a with a beautiful horizon of possibility around what it means to have a movement that is leaderful with people who are disciplined and rigorous in their commitment to being excellent in their work for the liberation of black people. And I think a lot of different kinds of people, regardless of gender, show up and show out in leadership. I think about the folks in Black Men Build and uh, some of the, some of the incredible trans organ- organizations like SNAPCO, Solutions Not Punishment Coalition in Atlanta, and so many others. Uh, so I think I think it's beyond the, the sort of gender binary, but I do think that there is something about the way that we vision what we deserve and not just what we would concede to under the visionary leadership of some of these black women that I've gotten the pleasure of working with. You know, I think it was like people would have told us that organizing to win in Georgia was a pipe dream 10 years ago. And it it truly was in my experience of organizing in Georgia, black women intergenerationally, they were like, no, we can do this. It wasn't one charismatic leader. They worked together across difference, across organizations, across sectors Right, Insay, Tamika, Latasha, Stacy, Jessica, right? Like all of these people came together and said, "Like, no, we can do this." Right, and and for every Georgian example I can give, I can give another example in another Southern state. Right, it doesn't shock me when I look at the leadership of the movement for Black Lives and I see Black women in droves. Right, so I think I think there is something unique about this moment around the celebration of the leadership of Black women. I think the flip side to your point is that we actually have to get in a practice of what it means to like undo patriarchal violence for real, not just to value feminisms or womanisms, uh, but to actually do what we have to do to dismantle what we've learned and how we practice being in relationship with each other. That actually stops the harm, not just says that we value the idea of stopping. And I think once we figure that out, we'll, you know, we'll be, we'll figure it, we'll be there. We'll be, we'll be practicing liberation. I think that's our role right now. Yeah. yeah. Figure out how we practice it right now and don't just wait till the, you know, till the glory, day, till the glory comes. Yeah. 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 No, we got to get to that for sure. For sure. Wow. This has been amazing. Folks, HighlanderCenter.org. And as I said, this won't be the last time we hear from Ashley. And uh, we're going to go down there and spend some time there as well, as I hope you will also. In the meantime, send send a few dollars. Please, man, please, sir, support this effort. People talking about, what can I do? You know, um, the thing about movement, we're not always in the streets. Sometimes that's not what's going on. But in between time, you can learn, you can read, you can organize, and you can give. And we would want you to give to the Highlander Center. Highlandercenter.org, read all about it. And you will be so inspired, as I'm sure you are, hearing the words of our dear sister, our dear queen, Ashley Woodard Henderson. Ashley, thank you for joining us on Make It Plain today. Absolutely. We love Make It Plain. We love you, Reverend Mark. All right. I love you, too. 
HollandersCenter.org, everybody. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been May Play. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.